So my name is Justin. I'm the children's pastor here. And I've been on staff for about seven years. Prior to working here, I was at a church in San Diego where the culture was very different than it is here. At this church, the senior pastor had his stuff and all the support staff had their stuff and there wasn't a lot of interaction between the two. It's he wants to do his thing, you guys do your thing, we don't need to meet, we don't need to talk and that's just the relationship, which is fine, that's how it is. But if you were having a conversation with the head pastor, it probably meant that you were busted. Like the only time you're talking to him is you're in trouble. So that's the culture that I first really jumped into full-time ministry. And eventually I decided I needed to move back to Grants Pass. So I left there and on the drive up, I somehow ended up on the phone with Matt. And I'd never met him before. I'd never been to Edgewater before. And I'm talking with him and the first few things that I notice is he's really funny. He's engaging and he's really interested in me and what God's doing in San Diego and the different um, opportunities that I got to be a part of with different ministries. And I got off the phone with him, and the first thought I had was, man, Edgewater's so lucky to have such a killer high school pastor. Because <laughs> I've never been around a head pastor that was like that, that was approachable and you have a conversation with. So I show up to Edgewater back when we are at Fruitdale, and I'm like, weird building, but okay. And I go in and I see Matt go up and start teaching. He introduces himself as Matt. And I'm like, oh, that's the guy I talked to. So I go to the person running the sound booth and I say, hey, um, who's your head pastor? Who's the pastor here? And he looked at me like I'm a total moron. Like I've never been here before. And he's like, do you see the guy with the Bible? Like it's probably him. <laughs> but I'm like, it can't be that guy. He's got a sense of humor, you know? So my idea of how I could approach a head pastor was based upon all the history that I had, based on what other people had told me, based on the policies that we had, based on history and the culture that was developed there. And the way that I approach a senior pastor now is very different because everything is different. The way his outlook on people and the community. And I mean, Matt was even the first person that I told when my wife and I found out we were pregnant. It's entirely different than how I would approach a senior pastor before. And in that same way, you and I can approach God based upon our past, our experiences, based on what people have told us, our interactions with people who are in authority. And it's going to shape the way that you come to God, the way you approach your problems with God. And today we're going to look at two different spots in the Bible that I think are really a case study on how you and I are supposed to approach the Lord. We see one where really, I don't think you're supposed to do it that way. But then after spending years with Jesus, the same guy in the same circumstances, literally the same people are involved, the same guy has a completely different response. And I believe that response shows us what it truly means to be a Christian. So we've got two sections in the Bible. The first is Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, 
Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. That's an above average number of fish. Okay, it's supposed to really show you there wasn't a ranger present today checking limits. Okay, it was a lot of fish. Verse eight, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus's knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Okay, so there's one. The second one is John 21, also verses 1 through 11. We'll have it on the screen. I'll read it for you. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat. That night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, the fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Also an above average number of fish. That's a lot. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. So here you have bookends of Jesus's ministry. So in Luke chapter three, you have Jesus gets baptized. Luke chapter four, you have Jesus goes out into the wilderness and is tempted. And then immediately after that, he goes and begins teaching and preaching the good news of God. And then he calls his first disciples. So this is the beginning of Jesus's ministry. John chapter 21 is after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus at the very end of his ministry. So you have day one, Peter and his response to God, but you also have it being vastly different. The same events, same circumstances, same people are there. But after walking with Jesus, getting to know who Jesus is, everything has changed for Peter. And for you and me, I think the same thing, same thing is supposed to happen. So let's look at a lot of the similarities between these two stories. And then what I think the real main point of it is as we go. So the first thing is there's a problem. The problem is that there's no fish. So these are fishermen. They know how to do their job. They're doing everything right. They've done this every single day. They know what they're supposed to do. They know how to do it. And it's not working for them. And they're tired. They're worn out. 
They're just over it. They've had a real rough day. They're just like, ugh. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I've had a no fish year where I'm just tired, I'm over it, I'm worn out, and I was like, ugh. You guys feel that? I think we can all go, yeah, I, I, I can feel something there, where maybe you had big plans for 20, like, I can't believe I stayed up till midnight to celebrate 2020, right? <laughs> I had big plans for projects and for different events I was going to take Briar to. I'm all heartbroken because she didn't go to go to, to Boatnik, and now I'm even more devastated that it's going to come back next year. We had high aspirations for jobs, for our careers, for relationships. We had a lot of aspirations and things that we could be excited about this year that are all just gone. And we can feel worn out, tired, bummed. And I have a daughter who's five. And whenever she goes and plays with her cousins or her little brother, within 10 minutes, she will come running to me about all of her problems. And she'll tell me, oh, he pushed me or they're not sharing and the ball popped. And she's sharing all this, all this stuff that's really bothering her. And I could be sitting on the other side of the table with my bills open. And I could say, honey, sit down, because you're going to learn what real problems are today. Okay, do you see this? This is a mortgage, all right? That's a real problem. Let me tell you what an alternator does for a car, and let me tell you what my alternator does not do for our car, okay? Let's learn about problems, babe. But I don't do that. And she comes to me because she knows I care even if her problems are small and trivial, but also she comes to me because she knows I can do something about it. And just notice, in both of these stories, Jesus initiates the conversation about their problem, that Jesus actually cares about your problems. Even if they're trivial, even if it was one bad night of no fish, even if it's just a disappointment, Jesus actually cares. And when you and I approach him, where we think not only does Jesus care about me, but God can do something about it, Man, we get to see God move. So that's the first thing. There's a problem. Second, there's a command. And this command is really ridiculous. It makes no sense. These people are fishermen. Their dads were fishermen. Their grandpas were probably fishermen. They live in a village where the cumulative group of men say, we are fishermen. They know how to do their job. They've been doing it this way for generations. They know how to work the area that they work really well. And what they know is the best time to catch fish is to throw your net at night when the fish are towards the surface and you can scoop them up. But in an arid, hot, hot climate, the last place you're going to want to be is above deep water throwing your net out because in the middle of the day, because the fish are going to swim down deep where it's cool. And so now Jesus is in the boat with Simon and note, there's tons of people around. Jesus got in the boat so that everyone could see him while he talked. And then he, as he's talking and talking about the good news of God, he turns to Peter and says, hey, go out where it's deep and throw your net and catch us a bunch of fish. And Simon's probably like, ooh, been trying that all night, man. That's not going to look good for you, and it's not going to look good for me. I'm going to look like a failure, and this isn't going to be great. It's the wrong place, it's the wrong time of day, and a bunch of people are watching. Now look at John chapter 21. What happens is Jesus, they're, they're on the left-hand side of the boat with their net out. Jesus from 100 yards away, that's a football field, says, hey, throw it on the right-hand side of the boat. Okay, I don't have very good eyesight, but I'm thinking someone with really good eyes can't look 100 yards away and see, oh, there's fish. It's just on the other side of their boat. They just need to throw it on the other side. My dad and my uncle love to fish. You know, I was a, when I was a kid, they would bring me with them all the time. And if my uncle was having a bad day fishing, which he's going, going, not getting anything, if I suggested to him, 
hey, just fish on this side of the boat. They're over here. He would have me personally go check by throwing me in. Real quick, I'd be able to tell him just how many fish are down there. This command is just crazy. It makes no sense. And a lot of the times, in fact, most of the time that Jesus, the Bible, presses on us, tells us to do something, it it goes against all worldly wisdom. It doesn't make any sense. Like you have love your enemy and bless those who curse you. So the person who hates you, who wants the worst for you, who even actively goes against you, Jesus says, yeah, pray for them, lift them up, encourage them, do whatever you can to help them. That's nuts, right? Or how about when your spouse is just being awful and annoying and they're the worst and Jesus says, yeah, serve them. You go, I don't wanna do that. That doesn't feel like I should do that. How about forgive even those who really hurt you? Like the person that scarred you the worst, Jesus says, yeah, you're to forgive them as I've forgiven you. To me, this seems like Mr. Miyagi, where you have a boy who comes to a karate teacher and says, hey, I want to learn how to do karate. And the teacher says, awesome. Here's a paintbrush. Go paint the fence. Go buff my car and wash all of the windows. And the boy's like, I don't think you heard me. It doesn't seem like what the other kids are doing down the street. I want to learn karate, right? Where if you've watched the movie, what happens is Mr. Miyagi has to do a bunch of things that seem completely unrelated, doesn't make any sense, but it actually, through being faithfully obedient to what he's told him, causes him to become the person he needs to be to do something great. In this story, it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with what Jesus asked them to do. It has a whole lot more to do with who's asking it. It has nothing to do with the net. It has everything to do with Jesus said to do it, so I'm going to do it. And a lot of the times when God calls us to be faithful, you don't get to see what he's working till the end, just like the karate kid. Doesn't know what's happening till the end. He's like, oh, that makes sense. So like, you want your wife to respect you, serve her. You want your husband to respect you, serve him. You want to be great. Jesus says That if you want to be great, if you want to be acclaimed, you want everyone to look at you and go, man, I just love that guy. You're actually supposed to serve the lowest person. Goes against everything you'd ever learn in business school. You serve the lowest, the weakest, you raise them up, you help them. That's what you do. Let's say that you're a young, single guy. And today you've come to church and you're hoping to find a young Christian lady because, man, you just want to get married and this is where you're going to find her. And you look around and you're like, I don't really, where are they? Let me tell you where you least expect it, volunteer in the kids' wing. (laughs) It's where all the honeys are at, okay? You meet me after. It's more about who Jesus is than what he's asking him to do. And a lot of the times, it's being faithfully obedient just where you're at, whether it's in your workplace or with your home or with your families. I've been really struck recently as we've been going through the book of Hebrews on Wednesday night. There's this one verse, it's really just a nuanced thing. It's Hebrews chapter three, verse seven, and all it says is this. It quotes a psalm, and in this psalm, David wrote it, and it's just him saying, God, you're awesome, you're great, there's no one like you, and then he just reflects on himself and says, you know, I don't wanna be someone who hardens my heart against you. When you call me to do something, I wanna obey. And then what's amazing is the author of Hebrews knows full well that David penned that psalm, But when he quotes it, he says, as the Holy Spirit says. And for me, I was just thinking, man, how many things are we faithfully obedient into what God has called us to do that later generations will say, well, that had nothing to do with Sharon or with Kim or with Ryan. That had everything to do with Jesus. 
Like when we open up our doors for the evacuees and Carrie and Chris and Sean and Esther and Esten did everything they could to make this awesome for them and work for them. And the whole body got together to supply them and fill all their needs. What I love is no one's going around going, oh, the great and awesome Chris Martinez made that happen. Or Sean Logue just killed it. And he did. No, what people are saying, what the kids of these people are saying, what they're saying, what the community is saying is, wow, the body of Christ did something. Jesus did something. They're faithfully obedient where they're at. And when you do that, man, it's awesome. So here, here's what happens next. There's obedience in both the stories. What's awesome is they don't argue. Even though what they're asked to do is just crazy, they just do it. And I know for me, I'm an arguer. I don't normally do things unless it's going to fit my goals, or I'll do something if it makes me look good or godly or wise, or if it's practical. But if it's not, I'm like, I don't know about this. For Peter, he's like, I don't, I don't know about casting the net in, but here's what he says. He goes, I didn't catch anything all night, Jesus, but at your word, I'll do it. And he does it, and what happens is the nets get filled. And there's always going to be obstacles to you and me being obedient to what the Lord has called us to do. It could be humiliation, fear. There could be too much risk. It doesn't line up with our financial goals. But the type of obedience that I think you and I want and the way that we want to see God move in our lives is like in Luke chapter 5. Where notice that it tells us they washed all their nets, got them all clean, folded them up, had them stored. They're out with Jesus and Jesus has put in the nets and Peter puts in all of the nets. He puts them all in and they're all filled. The degree to which they saw God work was equal to the degree that they were obedient to what God told them to do. It reminds me in like John chapter two, where Mary goes to Jesus, says, Jesus, we've run out of wine. It's the wedding feast. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do about it? And Mary says to the servants, do whatever Jesus says. And Jesus turns to the servants and says, there's six stone jars here. Each can contain 20 to 30 gallons of liquid. Take them, go to the well, dip the bucket in as many times as it takes, fill them all up with water and bring it back here. Water is not wine. And if I'm one of these servants, what I would do is I would leave, get a glass of water, get it to Jesus and go, now that you're hydrated, let's have a rational conversation. Because I know at a wedding, if I come back with something other than what the woman in charge of the wedding wants, it's not good for me. Not good for my physical health. Right? So here's, here's what's crazy to me in these stories is the people, the servants, they went out, pulled up as much water as it took and filled these jars to the brim, the Bible says, and brought it back. If it was me, it would have been a cup. It would have been half a gallon, uh, half a, probably half a gallon, half a jug and brought it back to Jesus. And then I would have completely missed out. But the degree to which those people were obedient and said, okay, I don't get it, but I'm going to follow you, Jesus. That's the degree to which they saw God work. And I know for me, when Jesus says jump, I don't often say how high. I kind of go, well, this is all you get for today. You know what I mean? I know often that Jesus will push something on our hearts and we don't want to go all in with it. So like maybe let's say you have a problem. The problem is your relationship with your kids. And you know that Jesus is pushing on you somehow. It's, it's, it's with my TV. It's the amount of time I watch TV or it's the amount of time I spend on social media. 
And so what we'll do is we'll go, well, okay, instead of watching it for three hours, I'll watch it for two hours. And instead of being on social media for this long, I'll limit it to this long. Instead of being like, for a season, I don't have a TV. Or actually, I just delete the app. Or maybe it's individual. Maybe the problem's not with other people, but it's within yourself. And maybe your issue is porn. And instead of being someone who says, well, I'm going to go out and I'll join a support group, I'll be in meetings, or I'll get an accountability app or an accountability buddy, you just have a flip phone. And what's funny is sometimes when we think about those things, we view it in terms of what is getting taken away from you. Like God's taken away your TV, God's taken away your social, God's ripping those things away from you. But every time that you see the people be obedient, even when it's inconvenient, when it's hard, when it can be humiliating, it can be embarrassing, None of them ever go, I can't believe Jesus made me do that. They're super filled every time. It's like David and Goliath. Full obedience is David seeing there's a problem, feeling God command him to do something and saying, okay, I'm all in. If David's only partly in, he's super dead. He's all the way dead. But David's fully obedient. He goes in, does what God calls him to do. And against all odd, against all rationality, God's victorious. This happens over and over again with Jesus where Jesus goes up to a blind man, spits on the ground, puts the mud on his eyes, and says, go down to the fountain and wash it off, and you can see. Makes no sense. Jesus tells a leper, jump in the river seven times. When you come out, you won't have leprosy. Jesus, even when he's face-to-face with people, he wants them to participate. Jesus is trying to grow their faith through participation. That's why he wants us to to be obedient. It's all the nets filled. However many nets went in, that's what got filled. That's what Jesus does. And that's the thing that happens next. In both these stories is God does something only God can do. They're completely unable to handle the amount of fish. And here's something I got to preface and say. The story is not trying to tell you, if you are obedient, you get fish. If you're obedient, you're going to get prosperity or you're going to get everything you want. The story is more, if you obey God, you get to see God work. It's like Matt always used the illustration of a bicycle. You push, and then God pushes, and you push, and God responds and pushes, and God is actively looking for a partnership. But what's so funny is you and I can sometimes, we want a God who does step one, and then he does step four. So you go to God and you say, God, here's all of my problems, fix it. And I don't want a partnership, I don't want obedience, I don't want to see that again, take care of it. That's often what I want from God, but that's not what God wants. God wants a partnership with me where I get to hear his command. When I pray, it's not me trying to convince God to do my thing. It should be me trying to meet God and getting him to change me, to conform to his will, to do what he wants me to do. This story is trying to tell you and me that if you obey God, you get to see God work. And we know verses like Jesus is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above anything we could ever ask or think. And sometimes I think we place limits on God, where we don't go to him with our problems because we think, well, that's trivial or that's insignificant, or we think God can't do anything about it, so I'm not going to bring it up to God. But then if you do actually bring it up to God, God might command you to do something and you just go, well, I don't want to do that. You don't listen to the command, and maybe you do listen to the command, and you know what God has for you to do, and you just go, well, I'm only half in, or I'm just not going to do that. That's where I draw the line. And then we get upset when God doesn't do something. That doesn't make any sense. That's what we do. This story is not trying to say that if you obey, you're going to get everything you want. And I know often my motivation is, I'm going to do really good things that God has to bless me. 
Like, Jesus, I have been teaching three-year-olds who never once in their life have ever been told to sit down and listen to an adult speak the Bible every Wednesday for two years. My alternator's not allowed to go out. That's the deal. Like, that's how I feel like sometimes I want to approach God. We had an agreement that things would go good for me because I'm doing this. But in reality, I'm treating Jesus like a genie and not like he's God. We forget verses like James 4, 3, that even though Jesus can do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think, James tells us that we don't have because we don't ask. And then when we do ask, we ask wrongly to spend it on our passions, where we're asking just interested in ourselves, not praying to God, saying, God, I want to see you move. I want to see your kingdom furthered. How can I participate with you? How can I jump in with you? This story is not supposed to tell you and me that we'll get monetary gain from being obedient to Jesus. Instead, it's about Jesus's call and human beings responding in obedience. Jesus displaying his awesomeness, his power over all of creation, and a human being's response to him. And that's the last thing that happens in both of these stories, there's a response. And they're drastically different. In Luke chapter 5, I think you can make a case for Peter being religious. You have all the group, all the crowds following after Jesus. He's this new preacher. He's a great teacher. He's the biggest name in all of Palestine. He's coming down, and he sees some boats. He's got some options. And Peter's like, and he chose mine. He chose right. This is because all the time I spent in Sunday school, this is because I do so well, this is because of me faithfully being obedient in all these areas, right on, Jesus chose well. Gets in the boat, they're out there. I think he's, I think he's feeling a little religious, he's feeling a little self-assured. But then what happens with him, once Jesus reveals his awesomeness and who he is, Peter's reaction is, you got to get away from me. I can't be around you. What's the deal with that? I think it's the same thing you see in the entire Old Testament, where you have a guy like Job, who God himself in his throne room with angels around him say, man, look at Job. He's so righteous, there's none like him in all the earth. And then when God speaks to Job, when Job hears God's voice, he says, I despise my life. And you have Isaiah, when he gets a vision of the throne room of God, he says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, from a people of unclean lips. You have Moses, who tells God, I just want to see your face. And God says, yeah, if you did, it would kill you. I think the response you're seeing here is sinful man coming to seeing holy God, knowing I, I can't be here because my works, whatever I've done to make myself think I could be in your presence, it's not enough. My best isn't enough. And here's what's wild. In John 21, the same circumstances, the same situation, even the same people largely, are present, and Peter rushes to Jesus. The boat is getting full of fish, and Peter cannot wait to pull the fish in or being drugged by the boat. He has to jump in and swim to Jesus. He has to get there as fast as it can. And I think by spending those years with Jesus, he's been fundamentally changed by the gospel, and this is what it means to be a Christian. You're not choosing to be obedient because of what God will do for you. You choose to be obedient because of what God has already done for you. And here's the big twist in the story. In John chapter 21, Peter has not seen the resurrected Jesus yet. 
So the last time, this is, this is Peter. From Luke chapter 5, he spends every single day with Jesus. He eats a meal with them. They're walking places. They're talking about the kingdom of God constantly. He gets to see miracle after miracle. Peter is actually the first one. When Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter recognizes him as the Lord and says, well, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, well done. Blessed are you, Simon. Simon is in the inner circle if you will, wherever Jesus pulls himself away from the masses and even from the majority of the disciples, he always has Peter, James, and John with him. Peter's like right-hand man, gets to go everywhere with Jesus. Jesus tells him to be wary because Satan's asking for you. He's coming for you. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter goes, no, I won't. No, I won't. There's no way. I'll never abandon you. And on the night when Jesus gets arrested, when he gets his clothes stripped from him and he's beaten and he's mocked and he's slandered and he's being whipped, we learn that three times people come up to Peter and say, hey, aren't you one of the disciples? Don't you know him? You're one of his friends, right? Every time he goes, no, it's not me. You got the wrong guy. Mm-mm. And then he hears a rooster crow, reminding him of the conversation he had with Jesus earlier. And the Bible tells us that he looks up at that moment and Jesus and Peter actually lock eyes. They're looking at each other. And Peter, that'll be the last time he sees Jesus before he's killed. And so now you have him sitting in a boat with his net in the water and nothing happening. And if you're a religious person, like Peter used to be, Luke chapter 5, I think you sit there and you go, yeah, I deserve this. I don't deserve fish. I had the biggest test of my life and I failed it. I deserve whatever comes to me. I think if you're a religious person, if Jesus gets revealed to you and you, you can see him, and after that kind of failure, that immense weight of, I am a loser, you go, I don't want to go talk to him right now. I'm too embarrassed. Oh, gosh, that's awful. And the people with him right now are the disciples, those who know very well that Peter's the one who just totally bombed. Like, bummer. But here's the thing I think the Bible's trying to tell us about how we interact with the Lord. No matter how bad you've blown it, in light of your biggest, greatest, most awful failure, this is how Jesus wants to interact with you. God wants to meet you in your deepest time of need. Now with Peter, his sin and his failures, they drive him straight to Jesus, not from the presence of God, and he's desperately in need for him. In full light of all of his brokenness and all the ways he's failed, he's desperately in need for Jesus's grace. Tim Keller has a quote that I'd like to read for you. It'll be on the screen that says this, when you feel the worst, when you have blown it the worst, when you have done something you know is absolutely wrong, when you feel like the greatest failure, does that failure make you say, I don't want to come to church. I don't want to pray. I don't want to go to him. Or does it make you say, I want to get to Jesus right now. Swim, wade, run. Does your sin drive you to him or does it completely block your fellowship with him? And so for us, it's easy to come to church and allow yourself to become a religious person where you think I do good things, I serve, and so now God owes me. He has to do good things. I do more good things than bad things. I'm a really good person, and that's why God loves me. Or you could be a John 21 Peter, where you're honest, and you go, yeah, I'm actually not. I'm completely broken. I make terrible mistakes. I've 
not been the best to my spouse. I've not been the best with my kids. I've not been the best with what God has entrusted me to. But in that, Jesus still loves me and I gotta get closer to him. I gotta get closer to him despite all of that. Does your sin drive you from Jesus or to Jesus? And what makes all the difference in the world is when you have a problem and you feel a command and you're supposed to be obedient and you just can't do it, that's not what you're judged on anymore. God does not look you on that and say, well, now you're cast out. Instead, you're judged by his son's perfect obedience. And I don't think anything illustrates that better than communion. With communion, we're reminded that there's a problem. And the problem is not that there was a day of no fish or a week of bad fish or a month or even a year of a pandemic. The problem is deeply set in the heart of every single human being where we don't want God to be God. We don't want to follow what he says. Instead, I'll be my own God. I'll decide what's right for me, even if it hurts other people. I'll say things to people that will hurt them forever, and I don't even know it. It's stuff I do in my ignorance. There's a deep-set brokenness in all of us. And there's a command from the Father to the Son to live the life he had always intended for people, to serve others, to make himself low. The way that Philippians 2 says is even though he was equal with God, he didn't view equality with God as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself to the form of a servant, even, even to death on a cross. We see that Jesus in Hebrews 5, 7 was obedient. Then the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying to God. Jesus is the most righteous man who's ever walked on the earth. If good things meant that God has to answer your prayers the way you want, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, hey, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, let's do it a different way. And Jesus' prayer didn't get answered the way he wanted. And that's actually why the cross is so offensive. The cross is offensive because Jesus is desperately praying, if there's any other way that people can have a relationship with God, come back to God, let's do it that way. If there's any amount of effort or sincerity or a gift they could bring or a sacrifice or something they could cut out of their life, if there's anything they can do to come back, let's do it that way, God. And the fact that Jesus went to the cross tells us there's not. And then God did something. Jesus was obedient through shame and embarrassment and humiliation. And as a result, he received eternal glory. And you and I, as God calls us to be obedient in things, sometimes we just go, I can't. And we miss out on some glory here on earth. But you know what? God never looks at you and says, well, now you're cast out. In fact, the Bible tells us that you are so loved by God, you can never be less loved or more loved when my daughter comes to me and she brings me a piece of paper with a drawing on it, she doesn't give it to me going, I hope this makes dad love me. She gives it to me hoping I just go, dang, that's awesome. The Bible tells us now that we've been accepted by God, now we need to be living a life that's approved by God. We're obedient just so we can hear God go, well done, good and faithful servant. Man, we're obedient not hoping that God will do something for me. We're obedient because God has already done everything for me. He finished the work. And now you and I get an opportunity to respond. Where Hebrews tells us that we get to approach the throne of grace with boldness in our time of need and receive mercy and grace. That we have in full light of all of our failures and all of our brokenness, we can come to the cup and taste of his goodness. And here's the thing that's so unique about communion that Christians get to do that no other religion has. Every other religion says, be good, and then you'll find God. 
Christianity is God is so good, he's come to find you. And you get to taste of his goodness and taste of his grace and see how amazing Jesus is, and then you get to be cleansed. It's not work, be clean, be upright, and then you'll get to see how good God is. It's God is so good. God is so good. And then we're cleansed. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your body that was broken for us. We thank you that now we get to receive your grace and your goodness and see your kingdom here on earth because you didn't withhold anything. And in perfect obedience, you gave yourself for us. Let's eat the bread together. And Jesus, I'm thankful that in full light, of our brokenness, of the ways that we've failed and the ways that we know you've called us to respond to you and we just haven't, that you don't hold that against us, but all that has been washed away clean because of your blood that was shed for us. And now when you look at us, you don't see our failures, you don't see our missteps, you see your son, Jesus Christ. And we're clothed in his righteousness. Let's drink together. We thank you, Jesus.